Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today we have a very talented guest named Beverly. I didn't get the pronunciation of your last name. I'm sorry. I forgot to ask you that. Is it Dell? It's Deal, like let's make a... Deal. Got it. Okay. Beverly Deal writes romance, women's fiction, and blogs about polyamory and pop culture. Her memoir, which just came out last month, is called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and a Tiara, How I Celebrated Life While Kicking Cancer's Ass. Beverly lives in Los Angeles with her two wild and crazy teenage cats named Motivation and Creativity. Great names for cats. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited about where we're going to go with this conversation. Yeah, me too. So let's start by talking about how you discovered polyamory and a little bit about what your journey has been so far. Okay, well, well, my very first kiss was a menage a trois. <laughs> I was about five or six years old, and I was playing wedding with two of the other little boys in the neighborhood, and they were taking turns, and one was playing the minister and would say, and you may now kiss the bride, and I would kiss one of them, and then they would switch, and then I would kiss the other one. So... Having more than one partner is something that I started very, very young, but I didn't know that it was even called polyamory. I, I wasn't aware that this was a thing that other people did. I thought I was just a happy slut. <laughs> so um, then about... Four years ago, I had come out of a very difficult relationship and had taken some time off dating, and I started investigating the world of dating again. And a lot of the partners that I found online that seemed to be a good fit for me in all the different ways, you know, ideas about sex positivity, ideas about sexuality, ideas about life in general, we're talking about this thing called polyamory. So I was like, well, then I joined some online groups and joined some local groups and um, really started studying it. And I'm like, yes, this is me. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And now I'm not alone. Um, But at the same time, I feel like I have so much to learn. I still feel like I have so much to learn. Yeah, so do I, even after 20 years. So you're not alone. <laughs> We're all making this up as we go along. So, well, Beverly, I think you talked every... about being... So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that I think that we are all individuals. So every relationship that anyone has with someone else is going to be hand-tailored, so to speak. Exactly. So you talked about being, you called yourself a happy slut. And um, yes, I'm wondering how, how did you get to a place where you were comfortable with that label? Um, and because it sounds, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of shame in that phrase. So I'm 
I'm proud of you for being able to call yourself that. And how did you get to the point where you could own that label with a happiness to it? <laughs> well, um, I one of the one of my dating adventure times in my life. Um, I was introduced by one of my partners to one of his friends, and then we had um, quite a few threesomes together over the next few years. Then I dated other partners, and so after I had been out of the dating world for a long time, just to clear my head and, and to get, you know, sort out a few things, I said, okay, so when have I really been happy? I thought that, you know, the default is monogamy. I think I want a boyfriend. And then I was like, well, wait, do I really want a boyfriend? When was I happiest? And I was happiest when I was openly seeing several people at a time. So Mm -hmm. it's like, maybe I should do that. Right. So you were you had already found your way, but you just didn't have the the name of what to call it yet. Correct, correct. And again, I thought that I was like this, you know, this outlier that nobody else was was doing the thing. And I, as I've come to find out, there are I don't know countless people all over the world who are practicing polyamory or swinging or a combination of both. And um, so on the one hand, I'm sad to lose my, you know, outlaw identity. <laughs> but on the other, it's just so, it's so good to have community. So, yay. I think we're still outlaws in a lot of places outside of the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or metropolitan cities. There, There's a fair exactly. number of people who are in this kind of lifestyle all over the all over the US and beyond. It's but, true. Yes, um, it's true. I have clients on the East Coast too, so definitely. And so what are some of your other identities? Well, um one of the ones that I uh have discovered, um I was bi curious. Um and I have since discovered that at best I'm heteroflexible. That is that I can enjoy sexual play with a female partner if there's enough male energy in the room, but women don't light me up. And so Mm -hmm. I actually dealt with a sense of shame about that because so many wonderful women that I know identify as pansexual or bisexual, and it was almost like, how can you not be? If you're polyamorous, you must be bi. And it's like, mm, no, you don't have to. You can you can do what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also demisexual. I really, I'm very sex positive, but I also need to feel a strong emotional connection with a partner before um, they turn me on. That might happen really quickly or it might build up over time. I There's no predictor when that's going to happen. But again, I had some shame about that because I thought, well, if you're sex positive, then you should want to fuck people all the time because that's... And um, 
I think a lot of the pressure we put on ourselves, whether we're polyamorous, whether we're slingers, whether we're monogamous, is this pressure of the way we think we should be and not Mm -hmm. actually digging down to see what we are. Exactly. I feel you on that. And it's funny how you talk about feeling a little embarrassed or ashamed that you're not more slutty. (laughs) It reminds me of when, when I started hanging around with a lot of lesbians in my twenties and I had to come out as a straight person to them. (laughs) So, um, like you were hanging around in these swinging poly communities and you got clear from being out there doing your thing. You aren't completely bi, but if there's enough male energy, you enjoy playing with women and you're not like somebody who just likes to have sports sex. Like you want to feel some kind of emotional connection or a friendliness or love. And I'm that way too. I need to have an ongoing friendship with someone who I'm going to be sexual with. And I've, determined after a lot of trial and error that three weeks is my limit. If I don't hear from a lover at least every three weeks, which isn't asking a lot, then I say, no, that's not enough contact for me. I need at least every three weeks, at least a text saying I'm thinking of you or something. (laughs) So, you know, we all learn with trial and error what our boundaries are. We won't, we don't know until we get out there and mix it up and try a few things. Right, right. And um, I another label that I identify is I'm solo polyamorous. I don't uh-huh. have a primary partner. I don't want a primary partner. I don't want to share a home or finances with someone as far as children. I love children, but been there, done that, got the mommy T-shirts. Um, <laughs> that stage of my life is is. Thankfully, in the past, I loved it, but now it's in the past. So, um, you know, so that's not something. Some people feel like the only way that, you know, you can be polyamorous is if there's primaries or if you're a secondary or if there's hierarchy. And um, that's not how it works for me. Right. Thank you. Yes, I interviewed another gal um, who identifies as solo poly, and I want to ask you, a question that I asked her and see if you answer it differently. And the question is, if you don't have a primary partner or a nesting partner, how do you deal with um, concerns about aging, someone to care for you when you're sick, um, someone to support you if your pet dies, like those kinds of things that normally go to the default domestic partner? Um, What do you do about those needs? Well, I think it's actually, um, I learned a lot from watching my oldest sister, who is also a cancer survivor, and she had a life partner um, over, over 40 years, and all her eggs were in that basket. And when she got her diagnosis and when she was undergoing treatment, her husband had a stroke and slowly mm-hmm. died during the time that she was undergoing chemotherapy and it was oh, it was wow. a very ugly time for our family. And so the um the metaphor that I use is, you know, she had a life rope. She had this, you know, this was the plan. She had him to lean on, he had her to lean on, and it's like a you know, a thick rope to pull you out of the quicksand. However, 
if that rope breaks, then what do you have? Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a life partner like that, if you have um, one or two or however many other partners that you have and you have friends and you have family, um, you get to build a web. And that web is actually stronger altogether than a single rope. And if one of the strands breaks, if somebody bails on you for whatever reason, they can't take care of you, they can't uh, support you in something, then you have other people to turn to. You haven't, you haven't depended on just that one lifeline. Mm. I love that. Build a web rather than one thick rope. I'll definitely take that with me. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. And it does take some vulnerability to go to your friends and have those conversations and identify who you want to be your kind of chosen family. Have you done a little bit of that? I have. And um, that was one of, you know, one of the things is, you know, they always nag you, you know, get, you know, get a medical, advanced medical directive, blah, blah, blah. And I actually, you know, there was there was a shifting around of support personnel when I started undergoing cancer treatment because um, one of the friends that I'd had for a long time was like, mm, you know what, I'm not feeling it. Good luck. See ya. And that mm-hmm. stung a little bit, but it was also a gift because the last thing that you want when you are needing support is someone who is there with gritted teeth. Okay, I will help you for this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, you, know you, you want people who are enthusiastic. I'm pleased to be on your team. I'm enthusiastic about seeing you through the end of this. And that is more of a gift than somebody who feels obligated to be with you but would rather be somewhere mm-hmm. else. So Absolutely. It's all good. <laughs> and, then it's, and then it's helpful to feel the sting and feel the disappointment, but then let it go and don't hold on to that rather than living with the resentment that they weren't the person I wanted them to be, but to move on and find those people that will meet you where you want to be met, where you can have that give and take of support with each other. Exactly, exactly. And you will generally find it i i don't know i mean i i don't want to guarantee there are, there are people who for whatever reason their social skills aren't real strong and they may find it hard to make friends um this was something that i needed to work on in my life early on so i usually do a good job making friends um i used to be desperate when I lost a friend or a lover, it was like, oh, God, I can't let anyone go. I have to hang on to everybody. But now I'm, I'm more at peace with the idea that some people are going to come into my life and they're not going to be in my life forever. And that's the way of the world, and that's okay. Well, you just gave me a business idea to help introverts or people who are socially awkward to be part of, of that web of support in the world of poly. So <laughs> we have to figure out a way to help those people put that on the back burner. <laughs> well, one one thing that I've noticed, you know, as someone, and I identify as um, an ambivert at best, I'm introverted 
I'm outgoing. You might think I'm outgoing if you see me at a party or something and I'm talking to people and I look like I'm having a good time and then I need to go home and like decompress. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my thing that has always stood me in good standing for the last, you know, I don't know, 40 years, whatever, since I figured this out is instead of thinking about myself and thinking, oh, God, I feel awkward, people are looking at me, blah, 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 I look around the room for someone else who looks like they're uncomfortable. Mm, Very smart. And then I go and I talk to them. And, um, you know, it's, you know, uh, introverts unite. (laughs) That's a brilliant tip. I love that. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the importance of communities when you're living an unconventional lifestyle. Um, you've already tapped uh, a little bit into how communities have helped you and supported you to understanding um, who you were and what the labels were and that other people were practicing this lifestyle. And of course we have to turn to our communities for the kind of support that we were just talking about um, but what are some of the other ways that you see uh, communities being very important for this kind of lifestyle? Well, I think that it's it's really a blessing to be in the Internet age and to be in a place where you can join online communities because there might not be anyone in your, you know, backwoods town in Alabama or Pennsylvania or Northern California um, that you feel like you can connect to. I mean, they might be there, but you don't know how to make a connection. And so mm-hmm. um, I found that online chat groups are have been really helpful in helping me learn, helping me learn about polyamory from, you know, just reading other people's stories and, and the feedback that some people get. Um, occasionally posting something on my own and asking for advice. Um, so the online communities, and I've and I've made some really terrific friends, Sumati, uh, through joining online communities. And that's right. We, we met to, in a polyamory support group community on Facebook, right? I believe we did. Yeah. Cool. So. You know, so that's really helpful. But I also think if there is any way to have actual in-person communities, um, that is really helpful too. Now, um, I belong to an organization called Sex Positive World. I belong to the Sex Positive Los Angeles chapter. And we're a little different than a specific polyamory meetup kind of we encompass uh people with a wide variety of interests from uh the LGBTQ community to nudists to the kink community to swingers to polyamorists to people who are monogamous to people who are asexual um so ours you know, our our umbrella is, are, you know, are you sex positive? Do you believe that sex is a normal and healthy part of life, regardless of how often you yourself want to have sex? Um, and we have a lot of really wonderful events 
that are educational, that are um, help people explore in person discussion groups. I moderate a couple discussion groups. I moderate one um, on body image and coming to coming to peace with with uh, bodies that are not perfect, which is like mm-hmm. pretty much all bodies. <laughs> right. And um, so, so it's a, it's a really wonderful, vibrant community. Again, not everybody in every small town is going to be able to have that. It might be there. You might have to look for it. You might be able to find things in, in the kink community. But I have some really good friends who are sex positive, but do not identify as kinky at all. You know, the the closest that they feel an interest in kink is, well, I guess if you want to, you know, um, have me wear a blindfold and put a feather on me, that would be okay. <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to do anything that's more intense than that. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And that's as it should be. You shouldn't get, you, you should, ideally in a supportive community, you are supported in what you want to do. You are held as safely as possible, encouraged in the things that you would like to taste and try, um, but you're not pushed to do things that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And why is it important to have to be part of these alternative communities? Well, I think that, you know, I we we have so much conditioning that that is it's not only sex negative it's relationship negative i mean when i listen to some of the songs that i grew up singing as a child and as a teenager and songs that i still love today cuz you know they're great tunes and stuff but um it's like it's talking and stuff you know Ain't too proud to beg. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll wait on your doorstep all night and day. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's not cool. <laughs> and we're 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 taught through through pop music and movies and um, romance novels. Although modern romance novels, and because I write it, and it is very different than it was when I was reading it. Um, as a young teenager, as a young teenager, it was very rapey, and it was very um, just not good, not good relationship modeling. But so we've all mm-hmm. had years and years and years of bad relationship modeling in the general society all around us, and you know it creeps in. It, it's you can't insulate yourself totally from it. And so it's helpful to have a community that is dedicated to um, helping us understand this is what the larger community, this is, this is what the larger society is doing, and here's why we don't think that's okay. Here's why we don't agree with slut shaming. Here's why, you know, it should be okay to, to do X, Y, Z if you are interested in doing X, Y, Z. You're not sick, you're not, as long as it's involving Mm -hmm. consenting adults. Right. So being in these communities really helps us to deprogram that default conditioning of the monogamous, codependent, enmeshment type of relationships that that we grow up with. 
And for some people, and I don't want to run down monogamy, because for many, many people, monogamy is absolutely the right fit for them. I think mm-hmm. my problem with monogamy is like my problem with religion and with politics. It's okay if you are making it as a choice, if you've really looked into your heart and you've examined what it stands for and you really feel like it clicks for you and this is, this is what you yourself believe. Where you get into problems, uh, I, which I see a lot in monogamous people, who um, they've accepted this on the surface because that was what they were taught but they're not really monogamous in their heart. So they're cheating and they're doing other kinds of things that are not ethical non-monogamy. And, and, you know, or they're following a religion, you know, that they go to the church or whatever and they don't really believe that in their heart so they don't live that life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree. I don't... Um pathologize monogamy um, but the way monogamy is done in our culture tends to be more on the codependent and mesh side of things and I find that when couples that I work with who are in long-term relationships start to open their relationship for the first time they I usually have to spend some time with them unenmeshing their relationship first before they can start to go out and, and date other people um, so I, I agree with you that examining it and looking at how you're relating and finding what works best for your soul rather than just because you want to fit in and be, quote, normal um, is always the best way to go. Yeah, I, I think that, and that is probably, there's there's a, an article that floats around in some of the groups that I've seen that, like, the first thing you should do if you're part of a couple if you are a couple, you're part of a couple, um, and you're wanting to open up your relationship, is you need to build in some space from each other. You know, you need mm-hmm. to you need to just get in the habit. Like, let's say you have you know two kids at home and stuff. You need to have one night a week where partner A goes out and does whatever. Doesn't it doesn't have to be going on a date? It can be going to bowling or sewing club or you know whatever, and partner B has a night out and does things and, you know, the other one stays home with the kids or whatever. And getting used to the whole feeling of, you know, this is what it feels like when my partner is out doing something else and I will find a way to keep myself busy and enjoy my time with my children or, you know, binge watching TV if that's your thing. Um, People don't separate enough and then they sometimes try to bring a person in either as a unicorn to a, you know, and form a triad or to date one of the people, but there's like no room. There's no heart room. There's no time room. There's no calendar room. And um, Mm -hmm. it's not really fair to the new person to put Mm -hmm. them through that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you. That's great advice. So um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Beverly DL, who's an author. And before we go on to talk about your book and your cancer journey, 
Um, I just want to ask, you and I are both middle-aged white cisgender women, <laughs> and um, a lot of communities seem to be mostly made up of people like us. Um, how important is diversity to you personally and also in community? Well, I think that, okay, there, there's a reason why these communities are like this, okay? Um, part of it is like attracts like. Um, part of it is um, in order to have this kind of lifestyle to a certain extent, you need to have some financial security. Um, you need to so that if if you were if you're closeted and your your boss doesn't know or whatever and you were to be found out that you're not as likely to lose your job your house you're not you know maybe your kids are grown up and out of the house so it's kind of natural for communities to form like this we might have more more time but it is really important there's a lot of people who are people of color, who are ethnic minorities, who are disabled. And I think it's so important to try to find ways to be inclusive to them and have our communities be welcoming to them. And not only just, you know, here, you're welcome here, but you're a part of the community. You're building it. You're running workshops. You're, you know, you're, you're front and center. You're not just you know, the token person of color at this table, it's, it's, you need to be integrated into that. I think that's something that communities are beginning to look at more and more in recent mm -hmm. years, but we all got to do better. Mm -hmm. Right. How can we um, reach out more to um, people of color and, um, disabled groups and different types of people so we have that diversity in our communities? Well, I think that, um, you know, listen and listen hard. Um, one of my friends, uh, Kevin Patterson, is one of the leaders in the polyamory community in the Philadelphia area. And, you know, some of the things that we need to do is to try to move meetings around so that, you know, they are in all kinds of different communities. Um, they're mm -hmm. not just in, you know, some white lady's home in a suburb where people mm -hmm. um, who are of color might feel uncomfortable getting there. Maybe there's no public transportation mm -hmm. there. Or maybe, you know, um, maybe there are stairs and there's no way for people with um, ambulatory issues to get up to that location. And so, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, funds are limited. Volunteer homes are volunteer homes to, to host things, and, and some of them, like mine, have stairs. Um, but to, to be aware that this is a thing and to look for alternatives and to, um, like, one of, the, one of the meetings that we have for Sex Positive Los Angeles um, we have it outside in the park as much as possible. Mm. Um, you know, look for look for ways to to not do the same old, same old, and mm -hmm. um, as much as possible, um, put forward and to and to um, center people of color and people who have disabilities, mm -hmm. and people who are trans, and people who are marginalized, 
and, you know, look for ways to share articles that they have written or podcasts that they have done or uh, YouTube channels that they're doing. All those things that, you know, we can do because, you know, you and I can talk and that's great and, and I think we have a lot of valuable things to say, but white people have been talking for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's okay to hand the mic over. Perfect. I'm writing down, look for podcasts and YouTube channels. Um, I love that. That's a great idea. I'll find some people for my show on there too. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about your book and your cancer journey. Um, Okay. Your book includes a lot of pictures of your breast. So I'm just wondering, um, you talked about, leading groups on body image issues. Um, how did you get the courage to um, to publish those pictures and to find self-love for your body after going through cancer? Well, I have, um, my personal journey is I am, I am right now, uh, I would call myself fat right now. Fat is not a bad word. Um, I have yo-yoed in weight um, most of my life since being a teenager. And I have put on weight and I've taken off weight. And I've put it back on and I've taken it off. And that is actually the journey of most women and many men. Um, I, the statistics are something like 90% of people who take off large amounts of weight will gain it back in, say, five years, six years, usually a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So um, the idea is not to give up on being healthy, as healthy as you can be, but the idea is to give up on trying to be size X or weight X. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's a journey that I've been working on for several years. When I got my diagnosis, you know, so one of the things, that I didn't know was what was going to happen. Okay, so I have this, I have this breast cancer diagnosis. Um, am I going to lose a breast? Am I going to need to take both breasts off? You know, maybe I have the breast cancer gene. My mother died of breast cancer. Um, and so having boudoir pictures and sexy pictures had always been something on my bucket list. That's something I'm going to do someday when I'm thin enough or this enough or that enough, mm-hmm. it's like, well, I, I got no more time. I got to be enough right now, right this minute. And and um, acknowledge uh, my body and my breasts as having given me incredible pleasure over the years and incredible uh, pleasure to me. They nursed a baby, you know, They've been they've been amazing. So instead of um, so, what I did is I had um, contacted a couple photographers um, and decided that one of the things that would help me to make peace with my body would be to do before pictures and then later on do after pictures. Mm-hmm. And so I I contacted a couple photographers. 
and discussed with them and negotiated rates for, you know, for having it be two sessions. And, and um, I found a, a great photographer. I love him to pieces. His name is Nick Holmes. And um, I went with the idea that, okay, he's really talented and he'll take a bunch of pictures and, you know, I will probably like, um, yeah, you know, if I, if I get a good 10, 12 that I like, that would be good. I would be mm-hmm. happy with that. And um, he really knew how to put me at ease and how to light me and how to direct me and we had a good uh, rapport going. And um, I ended up with, I believe he took something like seven or 800 pictures. Wow. And then um, out of them, and I didn't love all of them, but there were more than 100 from that first session that I looked at and I said, wow, I really look beautiful. I look like a goddamn Mm. movie star. This is amazing. (laughs) And it really helped put me in the right mind frame that, you know, well, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, uh, and um, that I was going to get through it. And I didn't end up having, I did have surgery, um, a lumpectomy, so it was very minor. Um, didn't really change the shape of my breast at all. Uh, I did have to have radiation treatment. I did not have to have chemotherapy, but I had radiation, and the radiation did change my breast a little bit. It um, changed the texture of the breast tissue. It changed my nipple. Um, and that was a little hard at first to get through because I wanted my body to be, you know, I, you, you think in your mind, okay, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to bring this, everything is going to be back to normal. Well, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I ended up, you know, so there, so it's still, despite massaging and despite ointments and this and that, it's a little different. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be alive. I'm thrilled to have both my breasts still all. And that was another thing that I had to kind of weigh out in my mind. Um, if things had gone in a different direction, did I want to get a reconstructed breast or did I want to just let the breast be taken off and maybe get a badass tattoo there? Um, mm-hmm. that was the direction I was leaning. Um, but mm-hmm. You know, women women make all kinds of different decisions on this, and you have to make the decision that's right for you. But um, you know, I had my second session with Nick about a year ago, and um, it it really, you know, my my body is not the way. I would like in my fantasies, you know, in my fantasies, my body would look like X, Y, Z, and it looks more like DEF. <laughs> but that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my body is strong, and it's and it kicked cancer's ass. And I think mm-hmm. that as women, we get so wrapped up into 
looking at our flaws, looking at, you know, oh, here's this wrinkle here, here's this, you know, uh, blotchy patch of skin, here's, you know, here's this, here's that. You, you You can look at the mirror and you can find, you know, dozens or hundreds of flaws. But we need to start looking in the mirror and saying, hey, that woman, she's she's got a fabulous smile. Or look at the way her eyes are sparkling. And and to compliment ourselves like we would compliment somebody we love. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And congratulations on overcoming your diagnosis and being healthy and thriving now. I am. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so would you have any advice for somebody who might be new to showing up at a meetup group for polyamorous people or um, some kind of a party or especially a play party um, who might be feeling insecure about their body, um, afraid to take off their clothes, afraid to even wear something sexy? Um, would you have any advice to people who are nervous about their bodies when they want to go out there and connect with other like-minded people? Well, I think that it is helpful to um, to take a look at who's going to a party and take a look at what you think about their body. I know one one thing that I always had, like the Cinderella hang-up, you know, that I had huge feet. Um, when I was a teenager, I had a best friend who had tiny Cinderella feet. I mean, they were like size mm-hmm. five or something, and mine were mm-hmm. eight and a half. And when we would kick off our shoes, you know, and climb onto a bed or something together, it was like mine looked like rowboats. <laughs> they were huge. <laughs> or so I thought. And then um, at a later point in my professional life, you know, I'm five nine. And I was working with a woman who was about 5'4", oh, 5'5", five, 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 and um, trim, petite, and she had, um, she wore the same size shoes that I did. Mm. And her feet didn't look big to me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, wait a minute. If this smaller person has the same size feet and I don't think her feet look big, maybe my feet aren't as big as I think they are. Mhm. And I think that um in in most of the communities that I have gone to that I have seen um men and women at play parties um I haven't seen any perfect bodies yet. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I did some I did some work as a PA in the adult film film industry in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I rem- I remember my first shoot and there were these absolutely stunning young women who, um, you know, one of them turned around and she, and she was thin and she was toned and she was lovely and she had cellulite. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, she's a porn star and she has cellulite. Or, you know, <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, another one has got, you know, pimples on her butt or, you know, flabby arms. And, you know, it's all porn is, is, you know, is and was shot very carefully to 
um, maximize the attractiveness of these women and men and Mm -hmm. to minimize any of those bodily flaws, but they have Mm -hmm. them. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, if these beautiful young women who are, you know, every guy's wet dream have bodily flaws, then pretty much everybody does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience in my 20s when I went to a clothing optional hot springs place for the first time. I think that was the most healing thing I ever did for body image was to be able to see how other women really look nude because growing up we only see doctored, you know, photoshopped images in magazines. Um, and then in the locker room, everybody's kind of, sh- you know, shy and wearing their towels. So to to see people just walking around butt naked um, and really be able to look at them and see like, oh, almost every woman has a little belly, no matter how thin she is. And almost every woman's butt and legs jiggle a little bit when they walk. And, you know, just to understand this is how bodies look. They don't look like those pop culture images that were fed constantly those aren't real no so actually seeing people and looking at them can be very healing and i think it goes back again to the idea of you know trying as best as possible to get out of your head and and you know in a way I think that shyness is a little bit egocentric that oh my god Mm -hmm. everybody is looking at me no they're they're busy with their own shit <laughs> right they're they're like uh-huh. you know that guy in the corner that that, that that that's frowning at you or you think it's frowning at you you know he's probably trying to trying to pass a, a fart or something without you know, <laughs> making a, without making it a big loud noise or something or or you know everybody is is more wrapped up in their own concerns than they are most of the time worrying about you. So if if you can figure out, okay, so you're in your head and you're all worried about you and so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, right. then you can then you then you can um feel a little less like you're, you know, alone in the spotlight and everyone is staring at you. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said about complimenting other people for the things that you find beautiful about them because that takes us out of our own self-obsession and allows us to start thinking about other people and giving to them what we want ourselves. Um, Like I noticed how beautiful your eyes are or that outfit looks really sexy on you. I love your curves or, you know, finding something to appreciate about other people can shift your own mindset out of your (laughs) self-absorption. It does. It does. Now, the only thing I would caution about that is I've been in some discussion groups with some, some, women who some women don't like personal compliments. It makes them feel uneasy. It makes them feel uncomfortable. So I would suggest, unless you're actually in a situation where people um, are not wearing clothes and there's nothing to compliment but personal appearance, that you find something to compliment um, about, you know, wow, you know, your earrings just set off your outfit. That outfit is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Your When you smile, it lights up your eyes and your smile is so welcoming. Because people have a little control over how they smile. Um, Got it, of course. So make, or like appreciating so, something that they did or, you know, giving them an appreciation for how they showed up or or something they, they did maybe helped you carry something or 
something like that instead of what their body looks like. Right. I'm really, you know, when we were having that discussion and you said such and such, that really made me think that was a really insightful thing you had to say. Um, Mm -hmm. Those kinds of compliments are almost always welcome with everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas nice tits, you know, (laughs) I like hearing nice tits because because my breasts have come through cancer and I'm really happy about that. But uh, not all women want to hear nice tits. Yes, I'm really glad you said that because I mentioned to someone that I know pretty well that her butt looks really cute in the pants she was wearing. And then afterwards I felt slimy because of all of the Me Too campaign and the people that have been coming out as perpetrators. I started to feel the perpetrator in me and how I didn't, of course, I didn't mean that I wanted to do anything to her. It really, I was really coming from like, those pants are very flattering to you. But I started feeling like kind of slimy that I even said that. So I'm really becoming more aware of how I embody the perpetrator sometimes and how I can be more respectful of um, the way I compliment people. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. I think it's hard right now. It's This is a really hard time right now. A lot of people I know are, are very easily triggered. I had a horrible dream a few nights ago that I totally relate to the whole Me Too, you know, floating through the social media ether and, and everything. You know, there's just, there's so much stories of pain and powerlessness and, hurt um but at the same time um i think i i i i hope that we're we're passing through and we're going to be more aware and we're going to be more considerate and you know i've had my own you know issues with you know sexual assault and rape and so forth but i consider myself a thriver you know Surviving isn't good enough. The goal should be to thrive. Mm -hmm. And to me, thriving in the face of, you know, being assaulted, going through a life-threatening illness, whatever your thing is, if you can do it and have the attitude of, fuck you, I'm not going to just survive like, you know, Leo DiCaprio clinging to the board in Titanic. (laughs) I'm Mm going to thrive. I'm going to say, Mm -hmm. screw you, you tried to push me down and I'm up bigger and better. I I would like to think that society as a whole can do this. Right. Yeah, it's a a tender time and we're, we're learning how to be with this and it's exciting and also complicated right now. Um, So let me move on to um, one other question, I want a couple other questions I have before we run out of time. Um, you got a lot of diagnoses close together when you had your breast cancer diagnosis. I believe you were also d- diagnosed with herpes close to that. And um, h- how did you negotiate all that with your partners, and h- how did you deal with that yourself? Well, that was a that was kind of a, a weird and scary time. Um, I didn't know very much about herpes. I knew a lot of the myths about herpes, you know, like that cold sores weren't real herpes, wasn't really herpes, and yes, it is. Um, 
so my friends in sex positive world started talking to me and informing me about, you know, there's HSV1 and there's HSV2. And I was like, oh, well, I know I don't, I know I get cold sores on my lip. Okay, so I probably have that kind of herpes, but that's the good herpes. And I always get going to the doctor and I ask them to test me for everything. So I know I don't have anything else. And then I started to learn that actually when you go into the doctor and you say test me for everything, they do not test you for everything. They they test you for certain specific tests. So I decided to bite the bullet and, you know, get get a full panel of STI tests along with tests for hepatitis and um, HSV1 and HSV2. And all my tests came back negative except for HSV1, which I knew I had, my, my lip herpes on my face. But I also mm-hmm. tested positive for HSV2. And I had felt a lot of shame. I felt dirty. I had a lot of internalized um, STI shaming because herpes is something that's been talked about in the community, not in the community, but in the larger society is this horrible thing and this big oozing sores and your genitals are going to fall off. (laughs) And I couldn't remember ever even having symptoms of anything down south, but apparently I did. Um, So I had to tell all my partners, hey, I have these tests and here's what they came out with. And so then my partners had to go get tested and we had to have discussions Mm -hmm. about what kind of sexual activity we would have and so forth and so on. And I was, you know, then I was launched in the journey to learn about herpes. Um, And I've since learned so much and herpes doesn't scare me anymore. And I'm on an antiviral and I have not to the best of my knowledge transmitted to anyone ever. Um, And if, you know, and most people are like me, they don't even know that they have herpes. They either think the cold sores are not herpes or, um, you know, they don't, they don't have any symptoms. So they're sure that they don't have it. And then if, if and when they do ever get tested, and that's, you know, it's kind of a shock. So I got that diagnosis and it was, I was wrapping my head around that. And then it was, it was like not even a month later and I got my breast cancer diagnosis. Mm. And I really struggled telling my partners this because I needed their help, I needed their support, but I was feeling like, oh God, they're going to, that I'm just this, you know, bag of disease here and and they're (laughs) going to, you know, they're just going to think that I'm just one, you know, health problem after another. And um, I I actually was very lucky. Um, All my partners were very loving and very supportive and, you know, nobody jumped ship during that time. But it was really hard. And I think that that is something that we do to ourselves. We, We were like, oh, I, you know, they won't like me because I have this wrong with me or they won't like me because I have that wrong with me and I've developed this and it's a problem. Um, I think that we need to trust ourselves and to trust our partners um, that they're going to stick by us. 
Well, it's like what you said earlier about the friends that couldn't be there for you, because if somebody can't be there for you in your hard times, then that's probably not a friend that you want to invest a lot of time with in the future. So it's this unintentional screening method. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we're almost out of time, but I just want to address that it sounds like you never actually had an outbreak, so you had asymptomatic herpes. Is that correct? Correct. As far as I know, I um, my theory is that, um, you know, back back in the day when, when herpes was first, you know, when they were first putting it on the cover of Time magazine and saying this is the new scarlet letter and it's, again, the, all the stuff about how awful it was, um, I had a partner that I split up with. And shortly after we split up, um, he had sexual contact with a few other people and came down with a raging case of genital herpes. And, you know, I supported him um, in trying to go get it cured, which was total bullshit, but (laughs) we tried. And, you know, so I was all smug and I was all like, well... You know, I certainly, you know, dodged a bullet there. My theory now is that probably we both had genital herpes. Mine was asymptomatic, mm-hmm. and he had an outbreak mm-hmm. because of the stress of our breaking up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or and contact with new people sometimes. Co- contact well, with a lot of different with... people. Just, but, just but like, like sorry, we... just have, having, having a contact with a lot of different new people can cause an outbreak if you've never had one before. I'm going to cut you off because we're almost out of time and I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how to reach you. Um, But I also just want to say that you do have to press um, on your uh, medical care providers to give you a blood test for herpes. They don't include that in the regular panel of STIs. You do have to ask for it and you have to push for it because they're told not to give it unless you have symptoms. So you'll never even know. And you can pass it on even if you don't have outbreaks. So it's important to know if you have it. So I'm just going exactly. to give you one it, it, minute. It, it I, have to, I have to end that discussion. I'm sorry. I have to end that discussion to give okay. you time to tell our <laughs> listeners. It's been an absolutely delightful conversation, and I appreciate you bringing herpes out of the shadows and normalizing it. Thank you for that. And please tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you, and I believe you have an offer for them, and you have one minute. Okay. Okay, so um, you can find me on my website. It's Beverly Deal, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-D-I-E-H-L.com. Um, I have a Facebook fan page. I am on Twitter. Most of my ha- I'm on Goodreads. Most of my handles for like Twitter are Writer Beverly. Um, and um, for anyone who would like to contact me, I'm happy to give you um, an e-copy either of my memoirs, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll on his Tierra, or a short story anthology that um, just released this month called Rejoice and Resist, which is uh, a collection of stories about kick-ass women resisting sexism and political oppression, because that's an important thing these days. Okay, we have 10 seconds, so I'm going to thank you again for being on the show, Beverly. It was delightful to speak with you, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really great time. Okay, bye-bye.